Last week, we began our exploration of the notion of psikara chabeshara tchak, the notion that under extenuating circumstances, the process that a pokusik uses to determine halacha is slightly different than that under normal circumstances. While a posik normally rules in accordance with the most plausible position, as he understands the sugya, normally that of the majority, as presented by the Gemara, the Gemara introduces the notion that under extenuating circumstances, it is legitimate for a posik to rely on a minority position, and we contended that similarly, under extenuating circumstances, it is legitimate for a posik to rely on less plausible interpretations though obviously not impossible interpretations, of the halacha. And we suggested, based on Rav Lechenstein, that how implausible of a position the posseh can rely on depends on how unlikely he thinks that interpretation is to be true, and on the flip side, how much pressure he feels under, and how legitimate he thinks the extenuating circumstances are from a halachic perspective to push him to rule in accordance with the minority or less plausible position. We noted, however, that the Gemara Nida seems to present three levels of plausibility in Psak. Obviously, under normal circumstances, the highest level, the best type of Psak, is that of the position that we rule in accordance with, the most plausible interpretation of the Halakha. But then the Gemara introduces two other categories. There is the, the Halakha that is completely rejected, which the Gemara implies that except, as we noted last week, under circumstances in which Chazal choose to abrogate the halacha using the, method, the methodology of akirat davar Torah, barring such circumstances, but when they're actually trying merely to interpret the halacha, a position which is completely rejected cannot be relied on regardless of the circumstances. However, there was a middle category that the Gemara introduced, which it called loit marhilchata, Something where, while it's not the majority position, and not the position that we would rely on under normal circumstances, it is legitimate under extenuating circumstances to rely on. As the Gemara had said, in a case of the lo itmar helchata, lo kemar lo kemar, in a case in which the halacha was not firmly decided in either direction, so then it is legitimate, ra'ui le blank, it is legitimate to rely on, ex bishat the question procedurally we need to explore today is what exactly does that mean? What does it mean for a position to be not accepted but not completely rejected? What positions are still in play? In what generation, in what time period of Psak can we still turn to and use positions that have been seemingly not accepted? At what point do they become firmly rejected? Can we turn back to positions that were live in the time of the Mishnah, in time of the Gemara? Where exactly do we turn to? So, there is a wide range of opinions in the Rishonim and the Achronim. The most radical position, which is cited by the Orzarua in two places, and is mentioned halacha as well by the Taz, by Rav David Alevi Segal in his comments on Shulchan Aruch, is that even positions which are seemingly rejected by the Gemara itself, but are not firmly rejected, meaning we derive, derive from context or from general rules of Psak that this is probably not the Halakha, but the Gemara at no point says this is absolutely not the law and doesn't forcefully reject the position. Any time we have such a case, we can even revive positions that are found in the Tanaim, that are found in 
some of the earliest strata of the positions of Chazal. The Orzaro writes this in two places, both in Hilchot Sukkah and in Hilchot Orla Chadashu Shvi'it. Um, so just to mention one of the, of the times that he mentions this. So this is from the Orzaruah in Siman Shin Chavchet in Hilchot Orla Chadashu Shvi'it. And he writes, Ho'il v'hamishnayot v'atanaim cholkim bedavar. Since the Mishnayot and the Tanaim argued about this, and we see that there were Amoraim that followed this position and acted in accordance with this, and the Halacha was not ruled in accordance with either position explicitly, and there is indeed pressing circumstances. So now, the circumstance which he's talking about is the question of whether the prohibition of Chadash applies in Chutz Laaretz. The seemingly accepted position in the Gemara is the Tanaitic position that even in Chutz Laaretz, even outside of the land of Israel, <coughs> it is prohibited to eat the new grain until after the 16th of Nisan. In the time of the Beit HaMikdash, one would have had to bring the Karban HaOmer. But now we wait until the time in which the Karban HaOmer is brought. So in the land of Israel, it is prohibited to eat new grain until that time. The majority position in Chazal seems to have been that this halacha applies even in Chutz Laaretz. That would mean that out, even outside the land of Israel, if one had grain, one would have to research and determine, is this grain planted before or after the 16th of, of Nisan? Did it go through a 16th of Nisan so that it is now what's called yashan, old grain, um, and permitted to eat, or does it have to wait until the coming 16th of Nisan? Now again, the majority position seems to have been that it is prohibited that the laws of Chadash apply also in Chutz Laaretz. However, this was a very difficult position, and remains so, um, a very difficult position to keep, especially in Chutz Laaretz. So the Orzarua writes that despite the fact that the Gemara seems to rule in accordance with the position that this prohibition applies even outside the land of Israel, since the Gemara never says absolutely we reject the position that Chadash does not apply in Chutz Laaretz, <coughs> and because it's impossible for us to not buy grain from the non-Jews, so there is no position that Chadash does not apply at all in Chutz Laaretz, but the alternative position in the Tanaim was that Chadash, outside the land of Israel, applies but only on a rabbinic level. The difference between it applying biblically and rabbinically is do you have to be worried about doubtful cases? If the prohibition of Chadash and Chutz Laaretz applied on a biblical level, then indeed, as we mentioned before, one would have to research and determine, is this flour, is this grain, yashan, or Chadash? However, if you rule like the positions that it's merely rabbinic, and on a biblical level it does not apply outside the land of Israel, then, if it's a case of doubt, and one is unsure whether this is new or old grain, one would be allowed to consume that product. And the Orzorba writes that despite the fact that 
it seems that the majority position in Chazal was to be stringent since it's an extenuating circumstance and there was an alternative position in the Mishnah and the position was not firmly rejected by the Gemara, it is legitimate for us to go back to positions from the Mishnah and bring them back into conversation despite the fact that we have ruled against them. And he continues, We see that you can rely on a minority position against a majority under extenuating circumstances. And then he quotes the Mishnah and Adio that we discussed last week, as well as the Gemara and Nida that we discussed. Now this is quite a radical position, because it argues that even when something seems to, in the canonical sources that we have, namely the Gemara, seems to have been determined already, decided, as long as it isn't formally written out of the realm of possibility, we can turn back to those positions and make them live. Now, without getting to all the issues of Chadash and Yashan, it is worth noting that the question of why it is that the custom for for hundreds of years outside the land of Israel has been to be lenient and to not try to figure out whether our grain is chadash or yashan, though there has been a renewed interest in um, keeping the, the more stringent position, because the custom was not to be stringent for so long, many of the commentaries try to justify the practice in Chutzlaretz. Now, many explanations have been offered, but the position of the Taz in Yoradeus and Reish Sadi Gimel is that we paskin like the Yorosarua, which means that one of the primary commentaries on Shulchan Aruch, one of the primary commentaries on the central text of Jewish law, believes that the Orzarua's radical claim that even positions that were live in the time of the Mishnah and seem to have been rejected by the Gemara but not in an explicit way are still live l'halacha and that's how he justifies our practice or the practice for many hundreds of years of being lenient on Safek Chadash. <clears throat> now there are more limiting positions. So if one looks at the Tshuvah Chacham Tzvi in Siman Kuf, he writes that the cutoff is different. And he writes, Yesh l'smoch al harambam v'siyato. He writes that we can rely on the Rambam in a case in which the Rambam's position is a minority position. And he says, V'afta hatam amrin di inmera hilchata delit hilchata kirilazu v'shadat chak nami lo samchin nalei v'hacha hare katava beit Yosef delit hachata kavatei de harambam the case that he is dealing with the Beit Yosef ruled against the position of the Rambam. And in the eyes of the Chacham Tzvi, the position of the Beit Yosef in Shulchan Aruch is normally a determining factor in Halacha, one that has to be taken with significant weight, and under normal circumstances has to be accepted as normative. He says, He says, no, in the end of the day, as normative and as authoritative as the Shulchan Aruch is, it's not the Talmud, it's not the Gemara. Now, this is unlike the Urzarua. The Urzarua writes that even when something in, is, seems to have been ruled on in the Gemara, as long as the Gemara didn't absolutely reject a position, it can be live b'shad The Chacham Tzvi seems to reject that position and says, if something 
was ruled on in the Talmud, in the Gemara, so then the position that was rejected is firmly rejected. That is the equivalent of Itmar Hilchata. That is outside the canon of legitimate Psak. However, as normative as the Shulchan Aruch is, just because something is found in Shulchan Aruch, just because the Beit Yosef rejects something, <coughs> doesn't mean that a position that was live in the time of the Rishonim, i.e. post-Talmud, is dead. And therefore, the Chacham Tzvi writes that a Rishonic position, which the Gemara did not reject, obviously, even when rejected by the normative codes of Jewish law, is considered live for the purposes of Sharat Chak. As he says, His proof <coughs> is that as authoritative as Shulchan Aruch might be, as anyone who's ever learned Shulchan Aruch with the Nosei Kelim knows, many of the positions of Shulchan Aruch were challenged by the Shach, by the Taz, by the Mogan Avram, by other later authorities. And while it's a generally it's a generally a good rule of thumb that we pass on Shulchan Aruch, it's not always true. We often rule against the Shulchan Aruch. The Ramah, as we know, Ramosha Israelis, in many places argues with the position of the Shulchan Aruch. And therefore the Chacham Tzvi uses this to prove that it's the Gemara is a cutoff, and it sounds like any position ruled against in the Gemara, even not explicitly, is now a dead position and cannot be invoked even Bishadat Chak. A position that was live in the Rishonim, even if not accepted by Shulchan Aruch, even if rejected by Shulchan Aruch, is still considered live for the purposes of Psikara Racha Bishadat And again, his proof is that as authoritative as the Shulchan Aruch is, we know that often later authorities disagreed with the rulings of Shulchan Aruch, indicating that he was viewed as an important posaic. But not in the end of the day, a posaic with the ability to take a position which was live in the Rishonim and determine that it is illegitimate to be relied on, either, even under extenuating circumstances. The Chazanish seems to be even more limiting. Now, it should be noted that the Chazanish has a list of Klalei Psak, of rules of Psak, which while he formulates them as absolute rules, if one reads through the, the text of the Chazanish, one will see that many of the positions that he presents as rules, he doesn't always follow exactly. It is beyond the scope of this year to figure out how the Chazanish viewed his own rules of Psak and why he felt that he wasn't firmly bound by them when he actually ruled himself. Nevertheless, we will present the rule as he writes it in Siman Kufnun in Yoridea, because it captures another possibility of how to understand the procedural rules of Psikara Lecha B'Sharat Chak. The Chazanesh writes as followed, So first of all, as we already saw in the, Chazun, in the, in the Chacham Tzvi, he writes that any rule in the Gemara that would determine that we pasken like a certain position, even if the Gemara never says we reject position X and absolutely accept position Y, but we can tell from context, from the general rules of Psak, that you're supposed to pasken like a given position. Any such case, the rejected position in the Gemara, in the Tanaim, or the Amoraim, is firmly rejected and can never be invoked. Such as, Majority versus a single authority. And then he continues, And this seems to be even post-Talmudic, that if there is a firm majority, 
against the minority, so then the minority position is now not a legitimate position, even under extenuating circumstances. The Kol Shekin, and then he pushes it farther. Farther, Kishak Kol Shekin, Kishain Pluktab Achronim, if there's no dispute amongst the Achronim, Kagon Shekhal. Even if the Ramam had ruled a certain way, but many other Rishonim ruled differently, and Shulchan Aruch rules that way, and the Achronim rule that way, so then the Halacha is determined. And the Chazonish again, as presented in his rules, seems to be even more limiting in terms of what positions can be invoked arguing that not only can we not invoke rejected positions from the Gemara, but even positions that are post-Talmudic, if a consensus has emerged from Shulchan Aruch, from the Achronim, even if it was a mainstream position in the Rishonim, or at least a position presented by a mainstream posseg, even someone of the authority of the Rambam, if a consensus emerged later in time, we, one can no longer use the minority position as a live position, even Bisharat Chak. And this seems to be the most limiting of the positions. So again, to review the three positions that we have, you have the position of the Orzarua, which is recorded by the Taz as the practical justification for the custom in Chutzlaretz to treat Safek Chadash as a Safek de Rabbanan, as doubtful new grain, as a rabbinic doubt, and therefore permitted. Um, so you have this position, that even positions that are from the Tanaim, which seems to seem to have been ruled against in the Gemara, but were never firmly rejected, those positions are live under extenuating circumstances. Then you have the position of the Chacham Tzvi, that any post-Talmudic position even a minority one, is live and can be invoked b'shad atchak. And then you have the position of the Chazanesh that the cutoff is, is even later. And if a position is rejected by the majority of poskim, Shulchan Aruch and the Nosei Kalim, <coughs> or the Achronim and the later authorities, that is sufficient for the position to be outside of the canon of legitimate opinions for a posek to use. Um, there are, those are the central three positions. Though there are some uh, variants within that. Um, Rabbi Nathaniel Helfgott has two articles on the topic of one in Hebrew in his Sefer Divrei Bracha Moed um, and one in English called Minority Opinions and Their Role in Hora'ah. Um, and there he notes that Ramosha Feinstein has uh, several different presentations. Um, of the uh, of the parameters of psikat halacha b'sharat chak. Um, in one shuva, Ramosha argues that one cannot accept uh, even b'sharat chak a position that was rejected by what he calls poskim hamufur samim um, by the well-known poskim, um, which goes against the uh, the plain sense of the Talmud. Now, what exactly Ramosha means by this is unclear. Um, this seems to be a similar formulation to that of the Chazonish. Namely, that even post-Talmud, there are certain positions that have been so firmly rejected by the tradition of Allah, even if there is someone who supported it, we have to look at the weight of, of uh, halachic history, of precedent, and realize that certain positions are so, so out of the mainstream that they can never be invoked. 
Um, but he doesn't exactly explain what the circumstances are. Now, elsewhere, um, he rules like the Chacham Tzvi and simply contends that any position post-Talmudic can be live and invoked in Bishat uh, Chak. So whether Moshe really believes like the Chacham Tzvi or some variant of the Chazonish, um, is, we will leave as an open question. Um, but that should be sufficient to note that the exact parameters of what positions are in, what positions are out, and what positions are in enough to be invoked. Bishat Chak is a very complicated question, and many gradations can be introduced um, to explain where the cutoff should be. Now, there are several other complicating factors uh, here. Um, under what circumstances are you allowed to introduce the principle of Shadat Chak? So, we will return to some more specific questions in the future. But in the time remaining in this year, we'll outline some basic positions. Um, the Shach, in his um, rules of Psak, argues that you need not just pressing circumstances, but you need Shadat Chak plus Hefsed. You need there to be monetary loss in addition to other extenuating circumstances. Otherwise, one cannot qualify it as enough of a pressing circumstance to invoke the rules of Shadat Chak. The Bach, however, argues and says extenuating circumstances, even if they do not entail monetary loss, is sufficient to invoke the leniencies that are justified because of Shadat Chak. Um, another machlokus between the Shach and the Bach is as follows. The Bach writes that we can rely on minority positions versus majority positions. Because while we normally follow the rove, um, the minority positions are not live. Uh, are, not, are, are still live, Bishadat Chak. But the Bach, however, argues that you cannot follow lesser scholars against greater scholars. Because when greater scholars have weighed in, that makes a position the normative one and must be followed under all circumstances. Um, now, the Shach rules that you must follow the majority position, um, at least in biblical law, even Bishat Atrak, because the Shach argues that the rule of Rove, Acharei Rabim Lahatot, is an absolute biblical rule. He is willing to concede that in cases of rabbinic questions, it is legitimate to rely on minority positions. But it's not legitimate to rely on minority positions um, when you're dealing with a biblical rule. But the Bach argues that this is not true. Even minority positions can be followed even when the case under uh, in question is one of biblical law. Now, um, it is possible to accept the shach in principle, but not in practice. <clears throat> um, both Rav Yaakov Emden and Rav Yonason Eibschitz argue that even if one thinks that in theory the shach is correct, namely that the rule of rove applies under all circumstances, um, practically it's very hard to determine that a position is the position of the majority, thereby legitimating rejecting a minority position or necessitating rejecting minority position completely. 
they note that there is the following problem. When we talk about majority, what do we mean? Do we mean the majority of poskim that are alive now? Majority of poskim that have ever lived? The majority of poskim who have written Piskei Halacha? But there are so many books that have been lost, so many poskim that never wrote things down, that it's impossible to know, over the course of history, what counts as a rove, what counts as majority, or what the majority even is. And therefore, even if in theory one thinks that the rule of rove determines that we must always follow the majority position, practically one might think that the position that seems to be in the minority is legitimate because epistemically we simply don't know which position is that of the majority and which is that of the minority. Now the position of the Bach is more principled. The position of the Bach is that the rule of Achrei Rabim Lahatod is limited to Beidin, is limited to context of the courts, when there is a process of voting, when there is a closed group of people that are determining a question, and they vote, and then you count the number of positions on each side, and you rule in accordance with the majority. But he argues that the position of Rove, the notion that there is a Rove, um, a rule of rove, simply by postkim, when there is no formal vote and you're talking over the course of history, that's not what the rule of Achari Rabbim Lahatot means, and that's why he thinks that the minority position remains live. Um, the Shach claims that even Bishadatrak, one may not follow the position of a student against his teacher. Um, the Shach does note, however, that if, in addition, to the minority position, one finds an, another reason in Shas to suggest leniency, so then, even though he tends to be more limiting in terms of his application of the principle of he does contend that when one can combine several reasons, especially those that can be justified from the Gemara, then it is indeed legitimate to rule based on the minority position. <clears throat> now, to um, to summarize a few of the issues as they appear, we will just quickly read the position of the Rama. So the Rama in Siman Chafhei and Choshen Mishpat Sif Beis writes as follows. He says, "Ve'im hu behorara isur v'hater hu davar isur daraita yelech lochumra." When you're dealing with ritual law, if you're talking about a biblical case and there's a safek and there's a doubt, so then the rule is that you follow the stringent position. But it's legitimate in general, meaning not on just Bishat HaTchak, when there's a case of doubt in rabbinic law to follow the lenient position. However, he argues that this is only if they are equivalent. But you can't rely on the minority or the position of the lesser scholar. Afilu Bishat HaTchak even under extenuating circumstances. Again, this is the position of the Bach, though the Shach did not fully agree. But the Rama seems to write that even that rule, meaning that you can't follow lesser scholars if you have extenuating circumstances which also include monetary loss, so then he would allow you to rely on the lesser scholars. If there's minority versus majority, one follows the majority. And here he notes that the, that the majority has weight even if they don't all agree with the reason for stringency. But if all of them, in a given circumstances, rule that something is prohibited, 
then it does count as a majority. Since they agree, we follow, we consider them rov. Though, as we noted, there are two sveikot here. One is whether indeed we think that the rule of rov applies outside the context of Beitin, which is a machlokas shach and bach. And the second is that even if you think in principle, the rule of Rov should apply not just in the context of Beit Din, but to Poskim in general. Is it possible to even determine what the Rov is, the point of Jonas and Aishas and Yaakov Emden? Um, one other qualification that Ramah introduces, introduces, which we will need to return to, is even if there is a clear majority, but there is a set custom in a given city to be lenient, because a previous posig had ruled definitively, so then and this is something that we will need to return to. The Sride Eish argues that the reason um, in biblical law it might be legitimate to, um, even in cases of biblical law, it might be legitimate to rely on um, minority positions when there is a case of doubt, when one might think that it, you have to be stringent because the rule of Safek right al might be based on the Rambam. The Rambam writes that the entire principle of Safek right al is itself rabbinic. On a biblical level, in a case of doubt, even on biblical law, one has the right to be lenient. Therefore, the Sri Deish argues that in any case of doubt, really you're dealing with a rabbinic prohibition. Therefore, if you're already dealing with a rabbinic prohibition and you have extenuating circumstances, it would be legitimate to rely on the minority position. And that may explain the more permitting view of the Bach against the more limiting position of the Shach. What we've seen in this year um, is the second half of our discussion from last week. As we noted at the beginning, last week we discussed the philosophical justification and the procedural justification for reliance on minority positions under extenuating circumstances. As we explore this week, exactly when it is legitimate to invoke those positions, only in positions um, that, um, even in positions that are that were, seem to have been rejected by the Gemara, but were not absolutely so, um, only in post. Talmudic positions, um, or is it possible that there is a point even beyond the Talmud at which something is so rejected that it can never be invoked? Um, and then the question of what would it mean for something to be rejected? Does Rove, the rule of majority, apply outside of the context of Bet, bet Din? Even if it does, how do we practically invoke that nowadays? Um, does the sim- the simple fact that epistemically it's hard to determine that leave more positions in play? La what does it mean for something to be extenuating circumstances? Does any extenuating circumstance work, or do you also need a loss, which is the machlok at shach bach? Um, can you rely on it in biblical law as well, um, or only in rabbinic law, which is a machlok as between the shach and the bach? And I will note that this is uh, a bit too detailed for our share now, seems to be dependent on how one reads the tshuva darashba, chelik aleph, tshuva resh nun gimel, um, does one is one allowed to invoke this in um, only in rabbinic law or even in biblical law? 
Um, what about greater scholars versus lesser scholars? Um, there are many other details to this, but hopefully in this year we've begun to outline how complicated um, this is and why and when it's legitimate for a postsake to do what he normally wouldn't do, which is rely on the minority position or the less plausible position than he would have understood in the sugya in a in a vacuum. Um, one last point is that most of the discussion in halacha about shadatchak is cases in which the posek wants to be mekil, wants to be lenient, and is looking for grounds for leniency. However, as we'll see later in the year, there are cases where poskim actually are pushed to be machmir, and the extenuating circumstances do not warrant leniency, but in, t- in fact push them to enforce stringencies which are less plausible than the more lenient reading. Um, That is something we will have to explore later, but it's worth noting that such a category exists.